A few weeks ago, after worship one Sunday morning, I was out on the front lawn shaking hands with folk after the 11 o'clock service, and someone came up to me, they shall remain nameless. They came up to me and they said, Preacher, you've got a story for everything. And I do. I really do. Uh, many years ago, in the height of the Civil Rights Movement, a uh, preacher by the name of Fred Craddock was driving across country. He had to go to a conference in California, and he was driving, and he was somewhere in northern Mississippi, and it was really, really early. He had been driving through the night, and he just needed to stop for some coffee and a little bit of food, and so he was going through a town he had never heard of before, and he saw that there was a, a diner with a sign that said they were open, and so he went inside, and there was nobody in the diner at all except for a short-order cook and Fred Craddock. And so he went up to the counter and started talking with the cook, and he said, hey, can I just get a couple of eggs and a cup of coffee? And so the cook whipped up the eggs, brought him a cup of coffee, and he sat there, and he was drinking his coffee, eating his breakfast, having a good time. And about 10 minutes later, uh, a man walked into the diner, a black man. And he went up, and he sat right next to Fred Craddock at the counter, and the cook looked over his shoulder, and he said, what are you doing here? He said, I'd like to get some breakfast like this gentleman. I'm quite hungry. And the cook said, well, can't you read, boy? There's a sign that says, we don't welcome your kind here. And he said, well, my money is just as good as this gentleman's. I'd really like to have some breakfast. I'm quite hungry. I'd like to have a cup of coffee. I have to go to work. And the cook got really angry. And he said, boy, if you don't leave, I'm going to make you leave. And they started getting really heated, and they were yelling at each other over the counter, and Fred is sitting right there, and he's witnessing this whole thing taking place. And finally, the, the black man says, okay, I, I, don't, I don't want any trouble. And he gets up, and he leaves. So Fred Craddock is still sitting there at the counter, and he finishes his breakfast, and he says goodbye to the cook, and he gets out to his car to continue his cross-country road trip. And before he opens the door, he hears a rooster crow in the distance. That's a story that only really hits you if you know what happened to St. Peter, who on the night in which Jesus gave himself up for us was told, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. So here's Fred Craddock, preacher in training, driving across the country, and he hears the, crow, he hears the, the cock crow in the distance, and he knows that it's crowing for him. So I wonder, who is the greater sinner? The cook who threw the man out of the diner? or the man who sat at the counter and did absolutely nothing. Our scripture today comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. At the time, there were some present who told him about Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or how about those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, and he found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put some manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.
Interior coffee shop, early morning. Rain falls steadily against a window. An assortment of customers in various states of caffeination are spread out among all the tables and the chairs, and there is a preacher, a really good-looking preacher, sitting by himself in the corner. He has a computer and his Bible, and there is a subpar sermon that is coming along splendidly. He tries to focus on the matter at hand, but he can't help himself but overhear a conversation going on at another table. If you ever see someone dressed like me at a coffee shop, be very careful what you say. He overhears a conversation. Can you believe that he cheated on her? Honey, that's not the half of it. I heard he's been living two lives between two houses with two different families. Now, the preacher knows better than to eavesdrop, so he goes back to that flashing cursor on his computer. He's able to jot a few ideas down, none of which will actually make it in the sermon, when a few minutes later, he hears a different conversation at a different table. You know, the Ukrainians, they're getting what they deserve. They elected that Zelensky and his liberal agenda. You know, I think we would do well to have a leader like Putin here, someone who's tough, who's not going to let anything get in his way. So it's at that moment the preacher decides to close his computer and leave before he hears other sinners talking about other sins and their sin. There are times when I like to think that we've come a long way since the time of our Lord, that we've progressed away from some of our wandering recklessness, but then I am reminded again and again that really nothing has changed. Do you think those Galileans suffered because they're worse sinners than any others? No. I tell you, unless you repent, you will die like them. What a grace-filled and loving word from the Lord today. Unless you repent, you shall perish. Uh, Robert Farrar Capon wrote that good preachers, and I would say good Christians, should behave like bad kids. We should sneak up to our dozing congregations, and we should steal all of their religion pills, their spirituality pills, their morality pills, and flush them all down the toilet. And why? Because the church has drugged itself into believing that proper behavior is the ultimate way to get to God. We are addicted to the certainty that as bad as we might be, at least we're not as bad as those other people over there. I mean, there's a reason that reality TV is still such a favorite pastime in our country. We feel better about ourselves when we see other people behaving badly. It's also why we're quick to post photos of our perfect little families even though they liked, acted like animals while we were trying to get them to take that perfect photo. Quite a few of you, myself included, posted a picture of the picture of the directory picture that I have. Why? Because we look so good. But part of it is I want everyone to know that we look good. And what's even worse is we want others to see how good we are in relation to how bad they are. We want people to think we have it together. The sad truth is none of us have it together. Some of us are better at pretending we know what we're doing, but at the end of the day, we're all making it up along the way. And yet we can't help ourselves. We compare ourselves to others all the time so long as we are superior to all of their inferiority. Now the crowds, they bring their question to Jesus. They want to know if people are getting punished for their sins. They want to know what it takes to be considered among the guilty. And the bottom line is if we worship the Lord, who punishes us according to the sins we've already committed or the sins we're currently committing or sins we haven't even thought up yet. 
If God punishes us according to our sins, then none of us would be around to worship in the first place. Or to put it another way, if every bad thing happens because God does it to punish us, then God isn't worthy of our worship. Now, over the centuries, the church has been a place of guilt. Make them feel bad and scare them about punishments in the hereafter, and they'll show up in droves to hear about it all again next Sunday. And the same is true in our wider culture. We're all keeping these little ledger books in our mind about all the bad things that have been done to us by others. But in the strange new world, the Bible, this Bible we keep coming back to week after week, it's not obsessed with guilt. If it's obsessed with anything, it's obsessed with forgiveness. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. The Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world. So what do we make, though, of when the Lord says, unless you repent, you shall perish? Of course we should have repentance, a turning back, a returning to the Lord. We've all wandered away from the way. But repentance is supposed to be a joyful thing. It's supposed to be a celebration, not a bargain chip that we cash in to get God to put up with us. Response is what we're supposed to do with repentance. We're supposed to take what God has done and then respond by turning back. It's not a merit that we have earned to be on God's good side. Now, we can certainly feel guilty about our sins. Perhaps we should feel guilty about our sins. But feeling guilty about our sins doesn't really do anything. In fact, the more we lob on guilt, the more likely we are to keep sinning because we feel so guilty. The only thing we can really ever do about our sins is admit them. It's a great challenge to see ourselves for who we really, really are. I, I put a mirror right where I'm standing last week in worship, and I encouraged everyone at both services to, to come and stand and really look hard in the mirror. And unless I was praying so hard, my eyes were so closed, no one came and did it. And I don't blame you. It's not fun. <laughs> No one wants to look hard in the mirror and consider who we really are, particularly in relation to God. But we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. It's only because of that that we can take steps in the direction of repentance. But if we ever repent, it's only because we live in the light of grace. Because grace works without requiring anything from us. There's no amount of self-help books, no number of piously repentant prayers, no perfect family, perfect job, perfect paycheck, perfect morality, perfect anything that earns us anything. Grace isn't expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. And according to the strange, wondrous word of the Lord, grace is like manure. Aren't you glad you came to church to hear about manure? Perhaps we should call it holy fertilizer. I mean, this is classic Jesus here, this, this moment. The crowds approach him with a very serious question. I mean, lives are at stake. And his response to their question is a story, a parable. A man has a vineyard. In the middle of the vineyard, he plants a fig tree. And for three years, it does not a thing. It doesn't produce one fig. So the vineyard owner goes to his gardener and he says, I can't take it anymore. This fig tree is wasting all of my good soil. I want you to cut it down. And then the gardener says, Lord, let it be. Why not give it another year? We've got some good cows. We've got some good horses. Let me take some of their excrement. I'll mix it around at the bottom of the fig tree. And maybe, who knows? Maybe it'll bear some fruit next year. That's it. Short and sweet as parables are concerned. And yet even its simplicity, there are these weird details in the story. I mean, why does a vineyard owner, someone who has a bunch of grapes, 
plant a fig tree in the middle of all of his grapes. Do you think he's maybe planning to develop a, a new variety of wine of figs and grapes together? Or perhaps he's, he's got plans to open the first Fig Newton distribution service in Jerusalem. I don't know. It's weird. But nothing to me is weirder than the gardener. The gardener speaks on behalf of this speechless fig tree. The gardener says, Lord, let it be. Give it some manure. At least that's what it says in your pew Bibles. In Greek, the gardener says, Kyrie aphis auton. It literally means, Lord, forgive it. Lord, forgive the fig tree. It's the same word that we use in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass. Lord, forgive the fig tree. To me, these might be some of the most striking words in the entirety of the Bible because they proclaim a forgiveness from the Lord for no reason at all. They help us to see how little we can actually see. I mean, there's a reason that when Jesus is marching up to the hill that will be his death, there's a reason that some of the final words Jesus says are, Lord, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Lent is the strange and blessed time for us to admit that we have no idea what we're doing. That we need all the grace and the manure that we can get. I mean, the cross that we use to adorn our sanctuary, the cross that some of us wear around our neck, some of us have it tattooed on our skin, the cross is an ugly thing. It is a sign of death. How Jesus goes beyond the bounds of respectability for us. How he is damned to the dump because of us. How he's ultimately the manure of grace for us. It's wild that Jesus has the gall to tell this story. That the divine gardener offers to get some manure and spread it all over the fig tree, all over us. Because only in the foolishness of God could something so nasty, so dirty, so grossly inappropriate become the means by which we are who we are meant to be. God's grace gets dumped on the fruitless fig trees of our lives. It gets all co-mingled in the soil of our souls. It's messy. It's even bizarre, but without it, we're nothing. You see, at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't give a flip whether we've got a fruit on the vine or on the tree or not. He only cares about one thing, forgiveness. A forgiveness we so desperately need because we have no idea what we're doing. We are fruitless fig trees. If we knew what we were doing, we would have solved all the world's problems by now. But it seems like every day we just get more and more. We are doing nothing, and perhaps we deserve nothing. And yet... Jesus looks right at our barren limbs, all of our fruitless works, at our sin-sick souls, and he says three words that we deserve not at all. Lord, forgive them. On Friday afternoon, the aforementioned Vladimir Putin addressed the people of Russia during a rally to celebrate the eighth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. So while Russian troops were attacking Kyiv and blockaded civilians in other parts of Ukraine were being forced, I read this morning that uh, citizens of Ukraine were forced onto buses and sent to various towns in Russia to be put into forced labor camps. So while Putin is standing and addressing the Russian nation, he says that Russia was forced into this world because for, forced into this war because Russia had to get the Ukrainian people out of their misery. 
And then he ended it by saying, and this is where the words of the scriptures come to mind. There is no greater love than if someone gives his soul for his friends. Which is, by the way, not exactly what it says in scripture, but that a world leader used Jesus' words to justify violence and bloodshed is sadly not unusual. It's been done again and again throughout the centuries, even here in the U.S. Quoting that verse is a familiar refrain whenever violence on the table. Presidents Trump, Obama, Bush, and Clinton all used the same quote from Scripture at one point or another during their time in office. Greater, greater love... There is no greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. When Jesus spoke those words, he wasn't talking about anybody else but himself. He's talking about himself. He spoke those words before mounting the hard with a cross, not before going to war. He laid down his life for his so-called friends, you know, the ones who betrayed him, the ones who denied him, the ones who abandoned him, people like you and people like me. Jesus laid down his life for us. And even with a crown of thorns being forced into his head, with a cross on his shoulder, and the place called the skull in the horizon, he still says, Lord, forgive them. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.